afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Mad Hat Economics. I'm Jackie Stein, and as always, I'm here with Professor David Just. Hello. Liz. Hi. And Saren. Hey. Today, our special guest star is Professor Brian Wansink here at Cornell University. He is the professor of the Food and Brand Lab and is also the author of Mindless Eating and Slim by Design. Welcome, Brian. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> so, David, do you want to get us started on uh, some some tales? Sure. So, uh, you know, Brian joined us here at Cornell a uh, good number of years back. Uh, 2005. 2005? Yeah. Okay. So, yes, yeah, so 12, 12 years ago. And uh, so... What Brian brings is two things. First off, a lot of energy, <laughs> but also just incredible amount of creativity in, in thought about how people relate to food. Every project you get involved in with him, you're going to find something new about the way people think and interact with food that you just you haven't seen before. So I, I guess from my point of view, there are a whole bunch of places we could start, but perhaps we just start out by asking Brian... How do you decide what to eat? Whoa! <laughs> you know what's what's really cool about this is when I when I was a, when I was a little gooblet and I was I grew up in Iowa and I, I sold vegetables door to door in a wagon. And what happened is that you know, you're eight years old and you'd stop at one place and people would buy every single vegetable you'd have in the wagon and then the the, the house next door identical in every way. They would look at me like I was trying to sell them kryptonite. Okay. <laughs> but you know, what? These, these people had the exact same education, which is high school, exact same income, exact same everything, but none of those demographic, sociographic, educational things could explain why one person loved vegetables, one person hated vegetables. And it got me going in this way of saying, geez, a lot of these decisions we make, uh, you know, they, they're not really explained by reason, they're not really explained by the demographics and yeah. things that we learn about. But if we can kind of untie what some of those reasons are, we could probably get people to eat a lot healthier and be a lot happier. And that's actually what my dissertation was on that. That's everything I've done <laughs> since, so, since that day. It's all been based on this this uh, trip trying to sell vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, every summer. Well, I, I got to really? keep half of all the money that I that I sold. So, you know, it was a... Is this your family's production or yeah, is it... Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that where you got the vegetables? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's from there and then from a neighbor's farm and stuff, yeah. So was this a business motivation, or how do you help the family at first, or was it really just like you were astonished at? No, I think it's just, it's just very puzzled because you know all of a sudden when, when somebody turns you down and like slams it on your face when you're selling something you think tastes good in, when, in your house and you think makes people health, and they look at you like, yeah, get out of here. Uh, you know, it, 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 it has much more of an emotional impact on you than than when you're trying to think about it intellectually. Like, well, what can I do to get people to eat more vegetables? Like school lunchroom. It has much more of an emotional motivation for you then. Yeah, absolutely. So what can you do to get people to eat more vegetables in a school lunchroom while we're on the top? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of things that Dave and I have done. Um, starting, well, in about 2007, we, we got some small grants to try to test out some, some real small things. And back then, we used a lot of sort of economic sort of things, like, well, what happens if we change a price or we... Yeah. Um, you know, we bundle things together. And, right. and and that could explain some things, but what it couldn't explain is how you get people to eat better when price isn't an object, which is basically the case in school lunchrooms. It's basically the case in food pantries. It's basically right. the case in any all-you-can-eat cafeteria. We found that there, simply making, let's say, healthy products, like let's say mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables or white milk or whatever, 
making it more convenient, not convenient physically, cognitively, mm-hmm. more, more convenient in other ways, mm-hmm. making it more attractive. That could be attractive in terms of how it looks, more how attractive it is relative to other things, how attractive it is in terms of how you think it's going to complement what you're going to eat. Right. And more normal, meaning more normal to take, not a weirdo thing to, to, to take. <laughs> we found that changing those three things could nudge a whole lot of people more than economic factors can on the margin. School lunchrooms uh, creates a, a really interesting place to, to look at this because they haven't really thought about the way people are, yeah, they're, yeah. they're not business people yeah. typically. Kids, yes. and, and so they're not thinking about the marketing and, and it's not like a hyper nudged atmosphere, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are all these opportunities and they've sort of treated it as if every kid's going to walk in with the entire menu in their head already and having thought through and decided, here are the 15 things I want to put on my tray, which is not what happens. I mean, it's the, the kids walking through and they're more concentrated on talking to their friend and and, uh, and looking at, at around at what other people have and just dumping on their tray what everybody else is taking. And that makes an opportunity for very small things to have a pretty big impact. Yeah. So take us through from beginning to end how you changed the the scenery, the environment of the lunchroom and how students progressively changed their behavior and what they put on their plate. Well, you know, there's there's three sort of basic sort of, let's say, behavioral principles mm-hmm. that we're talking about, Maybe making something more convenient or something else less convenient. Mm-hmm. And then we're thinking about convenience, in a wide range of things. It can mm-hmm. just be convenient to reach, it can be convenient to imagine or convenient to pair with what you already want to buy. Mm-hmm. It's making it more attractive, it's making it more normal. And this does is done in three different places in a lunchroom mm-hmm. or in anywhere you're at it. And it's done through signage, what you communicate either before people get to the lunchroom, what you communicate on the thing, what you communicate when you look at what the lunchroom looks like. It's done um, through the structure, which is, can be the way things are organized, can be the way that things are, again, the way the, the lunchroom's sort of laid out, mm-hmm. um, the way that a tray looks. And it's done through service. And that can be, a service can be what other people are saying, what the staff's saying, whether there's an opportunity ahead of time to look at the menu online. And so using this matrix, you can come up with, with tons and tons of things. And a lot of these things we end up coming up with, but a whole lot of other things we end up inventing, not by looking at economic theory, not by looking at psychological theories, but by going and standing in the lunchrooms and saying, Let's watch people. <laughs> Let's see. Look at that kid. Did you see what they did? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and so, you know, if you look at, I mean, you guys were all, you guys were all able to take consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. You, you, we learned some techniques that are proprietary. I mean, they're not, they're not secret, but they're, they're, we, yeah. we developed them here. <laughs> we use them here. Things like behavioral event modeling yes. and storytelling and uh, prototyping. And, and those are the things. You, you watch somebody as they walk through the line, you tell a story about what happened today, what they're going to do. And all of a sudden, once you can start predicting what they take and don't take, you've all of a sudden lit a light bulb on what you can do to change that. Right. Changing the ordering of the putting the healthier foods first in line or moving Easier all the sodas change. to the back of the fridge and putting the healthier options in the front. Easy change. Yeah. Without yeah. getting rid of those less healthy things because mm-hmm. once you do that it, the game's lost because people say forget it i'm never going to eat there again yeah the, the kids are very sensitive to that right. right as if they feel like you're you're pushing them around mm-hmm. they're going to push back 
but you, you don't have to. That's the that's the sort of the nice thing about it is, right. you know, especially with the way the school lunch guidelines have changed over the last uh, you know seven mm-hmm. years. You have much healthier options available. These little things can help motivate them to take that food and actually eat it and, and mm-hmm. make use of it. Yeah, we had, a, we had a, you know we had a really cool experience, and this was we had the summer interns. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might have been five or eight years ago, and we were trying to figure out what it is that causes people to stop eating school lunch. Or in, when, in kind of what you can do to bring them back in. You know, these, these are summer interns, so you, any, anything we do that was work, you'd have to tie in some fun. So we went up to this, this incredibly beautiful lake uh, called Skinny Atlas Lake, okay, because that's up kind of near Syracuse. And we went to this it's a very rich high school and talked with all these kids to figure out if they ate school lunches, why they stopped eating, when they come by. And the crazy thing was there's a segment of people there that stopped eating school lunches for one or two very simple reasons or one one or two very simple things that happened that made them say, that's it. I'm not going to eat school lunch. And once they decided that, they never come back. They, 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 once, once they decided to flip the switch, it's, it's, you know, you are now dead to me. <laughs> can, can I guess what it what, what they were? Uh, well, ton, I, I had oh, reasons. I think the insight, the, the insight was that it wasn't a building is, thing. It was just right. like, once there's a break. It, okay. But what were you going to... I was thinking is the way it looks, because that's why I stopped right. eating. That's yeah. when you stopped. Well, I went to high school, and it just looked really... Gross. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people weren't buying school lunch, too. It was another... It was not normal. Yeah, for us, our like the main concern for us was like the popularity of places. So like one dining room was not popular, so like the, the other was like more. So yeah, it was all about that. So you how do you, dining rooms. yeah, it's like you're kind of motivated Holy about because of that. Yeah, why you that yeah. <laughs> that's why I remember I was eating like fries and ice cream for like lunch at some point. Yeah. So how do you think it changed in between adults and children, like those eating behaviors and like the decisions for them? That's really neat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think maybe, I'm not sure, maybe some kids can be much more black and white about things, whereas adults might be able more of an agrees on the way and say, oh, I'm never going to eat that cafeteria again. And two days later, the, the person in the office next to her says, hey, let's go grab a bite. They're like, no, okay. I think adults are maybe a little more flexible and you can bring them back. They don't turn, they don't say, you know, you are dead to me. I'm never coming there again. I don't know. I don't know that. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I don't. Yeah, the stigma is, is something you really do see when you talk to teens, especially. Yeah, that's, that, that's, right. yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. What about younger kids and um, who are pickier eaters? Or, or are, was there a lot of issues trying to get kids to try certain foods? Or was there such a random mix of kids with different eating habits that it didn't really become a problem? Like I can tackle it first by talking maybe a little bit at home in an analog that a okay. lot of us can relate to. That we'll, we'll frequently talk to parents and say, oh, I can't get my kid to eat vegetables, whatever I try, don't do. And I'm like, well, let's talk about what happens. What happens when they get home from school? It's like, well, you know, I give them all the chips they want because they've, they've had a you know, hard day at work, you know, playing mm-hmm. Pokemon <laughs> hard day at school. So, you know, they get chips and ice cream and stuff. And all of a sudden you kind of go, ooh, well, that's one reason they're probably not hungry at dinner time. And they say, then what happens at dinner time? They go, well, you know, I bring the peas and the fried chicken and the pasta out and put it down. And they, they totally don't eat the peas. And you kind of go, ooh, that seems like strike number two. And that compared to fried chicken and pasta, no, I, I don't want to eat peas. But if peas are the only thing that's put on the table initially, I kind of say, well, am I hungry enough to, yeah, I'm hungry enough to have some peas. And, you know, say, um, and then what do you eat? It's like, well, then I dig into the fried chicken and the pasta. What about the peas? 
Well, no, they're they're for the kids. And, and, you go <laughs> and you see all these things, even in a simple family dinner, that all set things up so that a kid would just be have to be a total weirdo to eat the peas after they've had all the ice cream they can eat, after they've been, been presented three alternatives, two of them which totally dominate peas in everyone's world, and after then they see the person they m maybe love or m the most not eating them. So you can see from the very beginning there's a lot of changes that can be made very easily that don't take a PhD. <laughs> that was pretty bad. <laughs> So do you use any of the ta those tactics at home with your family? Your and that's a question I guess to both of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can start off. Well, yeah. They, they, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the great things about doing kind of what we're doing is, is once we find something works, it, we change it immediately. I mean, we, we've, uh, this is a, a while back, we found that when people pour soft drinks or juice or anything mm -hmm. into short wide glasses they they pour about 30 percent more than tall mm -hmm. skinny glasses and I, I think within two days we'd gotten rid of all the short wide glasses down in the lab and i think within two weeks almost everybody had gotten rid of all the short wide glasses in their home and because the things we say we, and you, you run the data you look at the numbers you kind of go holy goodness we may not have predicted this to be like this or to be a strong whatever once you see it you go holy cow but it's this way with tons of stuff I'll, I'll tell you just one more thing david i'm sorry to, no, 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 no. we did this thing with this head start summer program one time and we were trying mm -hmm. to get we were trying to figure out how you know because fast food is a reality for tons right. of families and you can eat really healthy at fast food restaurants but there's probably a better way to guide a kid to choose, let's say, apple slices instead of french fries. And, and we tried something one time where we would ask kids, okay, what's healthier, apple slices or french fries? And, and regardless of what they'd answer, they would always order french fries all the time. But one time we asked them, okay, what would Batman eat, apple slices or french fries? And they, and it, you know, they'd stop and they'd think. And, yeah. you know, oftentimes they'd say apple slices, then we'd say, what do you want? They'd say apple slices half the time. But the strange thing was, it didn't matter who we said, you know, what would your best friend eat? What would your teacher eat? What would your mm -hmm. hockey coach mm -hmm. eat or whatever? It didn't matter who we mentioned, and it didn't matter what their answer was. The likelihood of taking apple slices when they had to step outside of themselves for a moment went up dramatically. And, you know, we did this with a small data set. I mean, like 30 kids or something. But once we figured that out... I mean, that next day, or even that night, I think, I changed the way I fed my girls. That's and you've, you've seen all my girls, and yeah. they eat everything. That's an amazing, yeah, that's a great story. So what, what about you? Yeah. Do, do you, do you <laughs> what findings have you taken back? So <laughs> we, do, we do. I mean, uh, making fruit available and, and in a central location, oh, yeah, yeah. sort of putting snack foods up in higher locations and, and back behind, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, cabinet doors those things are all all pretty common in our house and we will you know I, I don't know if i want to say we enforce them so much as those are natural those are things we do but you know it's interesting because so uh, growing up my household we probably would have been one of those that looked at you like you were an alien um trying to sell vegetables to us <laughs> I, I, I think my father might have eaten four or five vegetables since i was born <laughs> Right. <laughs> but I've, I've noticed there's this real difference between 
kids, right? I have like, I've got four children. I think I've got two of them that every time they see a fruit, they're going to pick it up and they're going to start eating it every mm-hmm. single time they see one. Right. And then there are two that fruit just does not look like food to them. <laughs> it just doesn't stir them one bit. And, and so I, I, you know, I see things that work, but different things are going to work on different kids. And, and so it's, it's been interesting to try and mix and match, if you will. Yeah. Why, why do you think that there's that, let's say, within family difference? Because you say, well, it's, it's, it's uh, heredity that determines mm-hmm. taste, or it's uh, environment that determines taste. And here we've controlled both those things. <laughs> <laughs> it's... It's randomness. <laughs> so I, I don't know. There might be some genetic component. My uh, my redheads certainly like the fruit a lot more than the, the ones that aren't redheads. <laughs> Which neither of you are either. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> don't ask me where my kids came from. It's <laughs> that mix up at the hospital. Here's an example that I can give. So what, this is what my mother was doing to me. There's a, there's a scene in the, my childhood video and my, my mom asks me like what happens if I eat a lot and I answer her by saying my waist gets bigger so how yeah she, <laughs> how old were you I was like a spy for something like that yeah oh, that's crazy yeah but my mom was like so weight obsessed mm. in those days and like she was always telling me to do some diets and like she was always doing diets so yeah, yeah. and she was a thin one yeah so <laughs> My mom said it differently. My mom would never say that. I also remember that I should take some food from my, like, when I was eating, yes, because she she thought that I was eating too much. Then, like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's this woman over in in Norway, and we we did this study with all these women who were 20 to 35 years old. And the idea, one of the things we want to look at was what determines... A person's sort of happiness with their with their weight because you know mm-hmm. one person can be I don't know 145 pounds and be really happy another person can be 145 pounds and just not be very happy and and one of the things we looked at was we asked people did your mom and dad ever com- complain about your weight or you know, what you ate or anything when you're when you're growing up and we, we kind of separate them we found that regardless of a person's weight. If they if they said their mom or dad complained or commented about uh, about their weight when they were a little girl, that by and large they thought they were 15 pounds heavier in their mind than somebody whose mom or dad didn't. Wow. Even though they were the same weight, they thought they were 15 pounds too heavy. They were they were less satisfied with their weight. They're less happy with a lot of different things in their life. And you kind of go, holy God! I mean, you know, being I. Would like to think, like, like pretty decent dads, and mm-hmm. maybe a, a very decent dad, a trying hard to be decent <laughs> yeah. dad. You know, I, well, I changed like that night what I did with with my girls and just saying, you know, don't eat all that cake, Valerie. You're going to kind of gain weight oh. and see that. Just you know, just not say anything. And you know, the interesting thing about that study was, I think there were two things that were interesting. <clears throat> One of them was that it didn't matter. We asked people how frequently their parents complained about their weight. It didn't matter whether a person said just a little bit or a lot. If they remember, have any memory of their parent complaining about what about their weight, it had the same negative effect. Whether it's a little bit, whether they remember their parents saying it once, or whether they remember a hundred times. So, did you happen to ask whether about whether the complaints about weight were always overweight or underweight? Yeah, now, we, yeah, the underweight didn't work. We were just looking at the okay. the, the underweight was kind of. 
Um, and they say, well, maybe that, that's because they were a you know a two hundred pound toddler. <laughs> but when we when we controlled for weight in the analyses afterwards, it wasn't. Yeah, I've been to Norway. They're, the uh, damage is done. So oh, it's, you, it's terrible, yeah. But I guess for future parents out there, um, they can it was practice. The good takeaway. Yeah, the good takeaway is don't say ever say don't anything, say anything about your daughter's and, weight. And position things accordingly in your home. You yeah. Know, use the tools from mindless eating and uh, slim by design to to nudge them, you know, without without saying anything. Yeah, so. and, and one of the other things we found is that when we asked also people, do you ever remember your mom or dad complaining about what you ate and people yes. would say yeah but <laughs> but what impact do you think <laughs> what impact do you think just, <laughs> if you if you have a parent who complains about what you eat but doesn't complain about your weight how do you think that influences a, a young woman Oh, poorly. But would they actually um, this is positive? The same way. Yeah, oh, really? Because they, yeah, they've divorced. They've, oh. they've divorced the food from okay. the from the person. Wow. So don't, don't eat that. That's not good for you. Versus don't eat that or you'll be heavy. Okay. Because then, it's, and that that was kind of cool. So yeah, maybe I was just associating because my mother and I would. Well, what happened is I guess it would be nighttime, and I was like, I like to eat. I grew up in a household of eaters, big big eaters. So I would pick up a grape because my we would do the fruit on the table and it made it very attractive my mom would say a grape at night is like a candy bar you're going to turn into a good year plant <laughs> but my mom <laughs> silence wow very horrible but she would say it kind of like all crunches. but my mother grew up with um you know her mom being on a diet and doing and the whole family being on a diet and like her mom commenting on what she ate and her weight as well mm. so that kind of carried over so yeah, it's very different from us actually. I, I mean, yeah. I, I know that we stopped eating dinners when I was in high school because all of the family was like weight concerned. Like so, we all like none of us was overweighted actually. We were just always dieting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You stopped yeah. eating family dinners? Huh? Yeah. Oh my gosh. When, when I was in high school, yeah. So so when you did away with family dinners, are you eating dinners on your own, or are you just snacking um, in the I afternoon? Mean, if we get or? hungry. Like, each of us, of course, can go to the fridge and get something, yeah. yeah, but, like, I mean, we were not doing it, actually, like, so it was not, a, like, tradition or something, so, yeah. We were generally not eating. Was it, huh. <laughs> what was the makeup of your family? Hmm? Uh, like, I'm, only, I'm, 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 a, I'm an only child, so it's just, like, mom, father, yeah. I think this is the biggest So, my mom and my father used to travel a lot, so he was eating always, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Okay. I could see that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, travel is, is murder. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, extraordinary about it. <laughs> but I can say that now I'm like too much um, concerned about my weight in general. Oh, yeah. And like I said, it, it makes me generally like more upset when I overeat that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I can see it too. Dinner, no way. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have a grape. so taking all that um into consideration how about people who know when like they're tricking themselves like how does self-deception when it comes into uh, in mindless eating and some diet design work does it work as well for people who are able to deceive themselves and you know I'm successfully nudging myself. I have no idea I'm eating healthier versus people who know, okay, I prepackaged my lunch for this reason and or I, I'm buying these certain bag of chips with, uh, and I'm alluding to an experiment here with the red chip involved. So 
yeah, how does that change for people who are more aware? The short answer, okay. it still works pretty well. I mean, there's extreme cases when it doesn't. But so here's, here's this is a great example in social psychology that there's there's all this, <laughs> this research that says that if you know somebody's really sort of sucking up to you, you mm -hmm. know, and even if you know it, you still like them better than somebody who doesn't. Even if you know uh. they're just doing it to be manipulative, you still like them better. And, and I think there's certain cases where things sort of backfire when it's externally imposed. I mean, David does some really cool studies on this. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it seems like with the exception of some of the smaller plates, if this plate gets too small, you just go back for seconds and thirds mm -hmm. and fourths. But it seems like a lot of the stuff, even when people start knowing they're fooling themselves, as long as it's habitual, they yeah. I mean, it seems it, to work. Some of these are going to be much more effective knowing about it than, than others. You know, anytime you try and nudge yourself with visibility and convenience, mm -hmm. right? If it's more convenient, it's going to continue to be more convenient, right? Mm -hmm. If if uh, if it's if the fruit is more visible and the the other snacks are not as visible, on average, that's still going to work, even if you're aware of it. it, it does it become a little bit less effective if you're aware? Probably, mm -hmm. but uh, but you're still going to be able to impact things. What really backfires, though, is if you go to extremes, right? right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, yeah, like yeah, you were talking yeah. about with the plates, if you you know if you have the like the three inch diameter plate, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not going to work. <laughs> Skipping dinner, yeah. 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 So, you know, so I give you, but I'll give you a case of somebody where you, you, people are totally aware of it and it still works like a charm. And so David and I were talking just a little bit earlier today about this. About, we were talking about the status that just it takes so long to publish. And once they do, it's like, whoa. And so I started this study about in 1994. So it was like 23 years ago with this person. And it, it only came out two years ago. It took 21 years wow. to... Finish. And one of the things was we, we found that when people's moods, you know, moods influence the mm -hmm. food you eat a lot. If you're a, you know, happy, you tend to want to retain that mood. If you're unhappy, you want to regain that mood. And, but we found the very simple thing that a very slight difference in mood, let's say being 51% happy versus 49% happy, mm -hmm. um, it was enough to nudge a person to eat just a little bit more, like 9% more, and to and also just pick a healthier selection of stuff. Just a little change in mood. And we said, well, how can you change somebody's mood? I mean, do you want to, I know, do you have a clown party every meal or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and one of the things we tried to do was we said, okay, here's one thing. We'd have people effectively just write down something that happened that day they were grateful for. And these were all lunchtime studies. So people are like, well, God, I've only been up for an hour. College students. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but they'd write them, well, you know, I guess I didn't get hit by a meteorite. What would happen would be simply saying one thing that happened that mm -hmm. was positive end up changing the mix of what they ate. Just simply uh, this little declaration of gratitude made a, 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 enough of a change in what they ate. You know, I would, I love that idea. And I have to say, it's my aunt's birthday today. And what she always have us do at the dinner table, we'd had dinner as a family together. She would have us go around and say our highs and lows. So oh, yeah. Yeah, we say, do that too. Yeah. Highs so and lows, you, who you appreciate most and why, and your compass for tomorrow. Yep. Really? Yep. It's a great family thing to do. Yeah. You'd never... It's hard. It's hard to wrap it up, though. It's just yeah. <laughs> you, you, you get four kids or three kids. That this guy going for it's, it's it's a license to it is turn it, the spotlight on them. Food is all cold, and <laughs> so yeah. Our, our dinners start, and they're uh, they're they're too interested in the food. We couldn't get them to talk. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you can't even make it to the table before people start eating. Yes. You, that's boys, though, too. Maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, the, mm. the girl could probably wait forever. <laughs> so funny. Sometimes she probably does. I believe that. Yeah. yeah. Well, with that in mind, uh, thank you all for joining us today. We have a lot of very good advice on how we can, you know, encourage our families, encourage ourselves to be healthier, live healthier lifestyles. And with that, you know, noted, go out and have a safe and healthy weekend. Thanks for joining us on Mad Hat Economics. We'll Take see care. you next time. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>